If you're a founder building a company, you're going to eventually have to start hiring executives to help you scale. The people you bring into your leadership team can make or break your startup. I'm Nigel Robinson with Build Talent, and in each episode, we'll be speaking with a founder or expert as we discuss the art and science of hiring leaders, why it matters, and how you can keep up. Welcome to the Gradients Podcast. All right, everyone. Welcome back to the Gradients Podcast. We have a very special guest today, Amir Varani. Amir, amongst many accomplishments, was the co-founder of Dropcam, which was sold to Nest Google, became the Nest Camera, and he's been kind enough to join us today. So we have a couple of things that we'd love to talk with Amir about. But Amir, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I guess to get started, I'd love to ask you, when in your life as a kid or as a young adult, did you know that you wanted to get into technology? <laughs> so from a really young age. So I think there's two ways to take this question. One is, well, when did you know you wanted to go start a company? And the answer for that is, well, it was kind of beaten into me as an eight-year-old. <laughs> My dad was an entrepreneur, right? He was an immigrant who came here. And from the beginning, he kind of said, I don't like working for people and he started a business. And so growing up, I was always told, you should go start a company, build your own business. The tech side came in after my dad bought a Tandy 1000HX, which is a very old style computer back when I was around eight years old. And so I started helping out with stuff, doing books and like accounting stuff and playing computer games, of course. And that kind of led me down the path of wanting to do tech stuff. Awesome. And describe to me the first time you sort of, I guess, tried out programming. Was that in school? Was that on your own? Oh, well, the first time was my dad started giving me basically handwritten equations. Like he was doing daily accounting for his business. And he was like, well, can you like do this for me? And I was like, well, we have this computer sitting here. Why don't I put it into a spreadsheet? And the Tandy came with a basic set of software to do that. And it would kind of save the files. And so I started messing with that, writing little, I guess, the equivalent of macros to do some of the calculations and taking some of the data and come up with like not just the results you wanted, but then creating weekly results and monthly reports. So that was my first taste there. And then formally, yeah, luckily the school I went to for elementary had a like kind of like an advanced class for people who are really into computers to go learn programming. So I learned basic there and logo. And then later on, a few years later, you know, I started doing Pascal too. So you learned programming in elementary school. Yeah. It's one of the beauties of being at a in a nice suburb in Texas, we ended up having a special program that allowed you to go off. If they said, you know, if I identified you as someone who's interested in tech stuff, it was probably because of our proximity to NASA. Right. <laughs> they said, let's give folks a chance to go to like the nearby community college and sign up and take some of these classes. Yeah. 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 And then I know that you went to school in Houston as well at Rice. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was where I did my undergrad. Was that a pretty natural choice to sort of stay local? Tell no, me about that choice. no. It's funny, people are sometimes like, oh, you're a startup person, you're an entrepreneur, you must be very adventurous. You, you must take a lot of risks. And the answer is the opposite. I was super scared to go away from home and it's always been that way. And so when it's time to apply for colleges, I applied to Rice and then a couple of schools on the East Coast and out here for like Stanford and Berkeley. But when the time came, I was really terrified of moving far away. I just knew I should go somewhere where I, I'm not commuting, but need to stay, actually have to stay on campus, but still be close enough to work where I wasn't like too scared and didn't know anybody. And so Rice was the place to go. And of course, it is also a really good school and had a focus on electrical engineering, which is what I knew I wanted to major in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But eventually you make your way to Stanford. If, is that correct? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, after graduating, a bunch of my friends went out to grad school at Stanford and Berkeley. And I was like, oh, no, no, I am not an academic. I want to just go off and 
and uh, work and start a company. But again, like I was very conservative and risk averse. So I joined a company first because I thought, oh, I need to learn more things before I can actually go start a company. And so I worked in Austin for three years and learned some really good stuff there. And then the time came and I was saying to myself, if I don't do anything now, like if I don't do the startup or make the move now to the Bay Area, I don't think I'll ever do it. And so risk averse person that I am, I said, well, what's the best way to get out to the Valley? And it wasn't, let's just go find a job. It was, we'll go to grad school. <laughs> and so that's what led me to Stanford. Okay. All right. And then you have a few years as sort of a, a senior engineer in the industry working for someone else. And describe that experience of being an employee and, and like, did that further push you toward your eventual entrepreneurial pursuits? Let's see. So you're talking about when I was at the startups, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think you were at Power Reviews and yeah, uh, and you were right. at Zobni, which which I believe was acquired by, by Microsoft, if I'm not. Yeah, so there's definitely a story there. <laughs> but yeah, the, so after finishing up at Stanford, I ended up joining a startup called Power Reviews. And it was about, let's say, like 12 people when I joined. And there was a couple of founders who had done it before and had built a company that actually did pretty well during Web 1.0. And then after the crash, they were acquired and worked at a larger company. And then they got back together and started working on this new idea. I would definitely say that as a younger person, I was a little bit of a snot. <laughs> and I think a lot of people are this way, but I thought I knew a lot. And I come in and in hindsight, I realized I was like just a stupid junior engineer. But I was there. I say this because I was at the company for a year and a half and I thought, oh, I need to go find something smaller. This company is solid, but I need to go do something else. I know friends who stayed there longer and they learned a lot. I think I learned a really good amount a year in the year and a half that I was there, but it was in hindsight. Like I realized how much I learned then, right? So what drove me to go from like one company to another was there's always this idea of pursuing something smaller, but I don't think I at the time understood what was really high quality about that team. Like the power reviews team was, again, people who had done it before, the two founders and the original like two other senior engineers who joined them are super awesome. They're really great people. And one of them kind of became a mentor for me as we were growing Dropcam uh, when it came to you know how to build an engineering team and hire. Mm -hmm. And so that was like formative for me in one way. And then the experience at Zobni was actually like, it was the anti-version of that. It was like what not to do. <laughs> I think there were a lot of mistakes there that kind of taught me and my co-founder, Greg, right, who was the CEO of Dropcam. I think we were both there together. And so the one big positive for Zobni is that's where I met Greg as well as a few other core people who ended up being a part of the Dropcam experience. And we learned, here's the things that we will, like the anti-patterns for what we want to do at Dropcam. And I think that affected us really positively as we built the company. Yeah. For those who don't know, Zobni was an email plugin that you could use in your Outlook to essentially be an email search. And this was pre-Gmail. So pre-corporate Gmail, where you needed to be able to find stuff in your email. And it was a lifesaver for me as a user back in those days. I guess if you want... I don't mean to talk over you, but like in case you're going to wrap things around, <laughs> the background for each of those companies, right? Just, you know, like power reviews back in 2006, no one had customer reviews on their website except for Amazon. And Amazon was eating everybody's lunch. Mm -hmm. So power reviews came out with a basically said, hey, add one line of JavaScript to your product pages. Big companies like Target, Nordstrom, as well as small companies that are just getting online. And you will be able to show and take reviews and you, this will combat the issue and make you appear at the top in Google search results, and you'll have better customer service and support, all of that. And so that was like their big innovation. Zobni, the way I like to describe it, was like it was supposed to be a heads-up display for your email. It started out in Outlook, and you just had a sidebar that would show you information about the person, the photos, the location, all of that stuff that would dig it out from looking through your email. 
And then also over time, they started trying to pull in information from online sources. Mm. So it was super valuable. I don't think there's an equivalent even today, but in the end, that idea didn't really monetize and work out. Yeah, yeah. Okay, zooming forward a little bit. You have a ton of really talented colleagues, people who stayed mentors to you through those two experiences. But what was it about Greg uh, that you eventually ended up kind of walking down the path of co-founder marriage with? Yeah. <laughs> so one of the patterns that I tell like founders to look out for when they are working on their own companies is uh, if there are people leaving a lot, that's probably a negative sign, right? Like going out for coffee, going on walks on their own, stuff like that. There were a lot of ups and downs, as you'd expect at a startup, but Zabni had a lot of emotional turmoil as well. And I think Greg and I, along with a few other folks, we'd go out for coffee a lot. And so over time, you know, we'd always be kind of fetching about what do we like? What don't we like? Oh, I wish we'd do this instead. And Greg and I were often aligned. And so like from one perspective, we knew that culturally we had similar tastes and what we respected about how to work with people and how people responded to the day-to-days of work, but we definitely were aligned on. At the same time, we started working on one of the core projects Like that, while we were both there was uh, kind of like an intake system for or the onboarding system for a user. And so that's where he was doing a lot of coding and he's super brilliant. He was coming up with crazy hacks to make stuff work with Outlook, both in the UI as well as the backend. I had enough experience to get stuff done on the front end as well as kind of doing, doing the product management, right? Like looking through support tickets and our overall roadmap and putting together like, well, here's what we want to do. Here's what other people are doing to like essentially build a viral invite system, right? So like during setup and the onboarding process, they would start showing you cool things about like what it was finding. Start saying like, oh, this person is like your number one contact. You want to send them Zobni? <laughs> and it works super well. It would click, people would click through and send an email because you're in Outlook already, right? So this is um, sort that's of pre, where we got pre-PLG, pre-product like growth. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's right. And it was definitely a system that worked really well. Like I think whenever people would hear our numbers for how many installs we had, it was amazing, right? Like, oh my God, I've got a million downloads. Like there were a lot of things that came into it. I'm, I'm not saying this was the one thing, but we did have the system that was showing like, oh, use the product to get more users. And so that's where we really got a chance to work together deeply over multiple weeks and months. And I think that's where the initial respect came from, right? I knew he was a very thoughtful engineer who thought about product and he thought of me the same way. And that kind of kicked things off. Yeah, I think that mutual respect is really core. So for Brian and I as co-founders, there's a lot of people that both of us could have worked with. But I think that you need to know that that person's going to match your effort. That person's going to be able to match your output. And that person's going to be able to match your depth. And like yeah. across those levels, I know that I, I found a, a good work work partner and co-founder. And it seems like you two did as well. Describe to me, I guess, that conversation or that moment when you and Greg come to conviction on, hey, we're going to do this. And whether you know what this is or not, that you're going yeah. to do something together and now is the time. Right. So during this period, there were three of us who would get together at Starbucks, even on the weekends. Like we were just getting together and just talking about more ideas and like, oh, it seems like things are not going well. We should leave and start our own thing. And so we would always come with our own set of ideas. And like we kind of knew that the three of us wanted to work together. Like it was three of us. In fact, you, you know, one of the, the other person is Brian Kennedy, who was also oh, sure. at Dropcam, sure. right? who later joined as VP of Design. And so... The three of us would meet and Greg bought this idea to the table. He said, my dad installed this camera and it was really bad. I had to help him for hours to help set it up. And I wonder if we could make something happen. And so the three of us thought it was interesting and we kept talking about it. And then I went on a trip. Like At that point, all of us had left Zobby, I think, or were on our way out, right? So After the acquisition? No, no. So I'll answer that separately in case you want to splice. <laughs> so when we got together... 
we were talking about this idea. And then I said, well, I'm going on vacation for a few weeks. Like I'm getting out of town to like decompress. And I left and I come back and he's like, hey, do you want to get together and keep working on some of this stuff? I think this camera idea has legs. And I said, sure. And at that point he said, okay, well, I've, I've actually got, I started talking to an angel and maybe this might go somewhere. So do you want to join in? And I said, sure. Like I knew that I wanted to work with Greg. Again, I like super respect Greg. I think he's great as both a person and as an engineer. And so I knew that I wanted to be involved somehow. The, the third person, right, Brian decided to go back. So that's why it ended up being two founders Got it. at the very, very beginning. And then another situation happened later on. But the two of us kept going from that point. I just knew based on the Zabni experience that Greg was one of the few people that I really respected and thought of as not just a technologist, but as like a product person. And so I wanted to work on that, like with that person. And then the idea came next. If he had said something else, I don't know how it would have been as convicted. But to, to answer the question about the, like the idea itself, the thing that pulled it together for me was Greg. And then I talked to my dad about the idea. And he said, oh yeah, we use those types of cameras all the time. They are terrible. <laughs> like, because he was, you know, he did it in convenience stores. And he's like, oh yeah, all, me and all my friends, we installed these types of cheap security cameras in our stores. And yeah, they're terrible set up and they don't work 90% of the time, especially when you need them. And so in my head, I said, well, worst case scenario, we're making a really good small business. Right. I already know there's like a micro target market here of like my dad and his friends. So this sounds great. Let's roll with it. Cool. Cool. So you and Greg are off to the races. You've got a little bit of angel funding. I assume you go into your own networks to hire the initial team. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So let's see that there's two components here. Do you want me to answer the question on Zombie real quick? Like, sure, I feel like sure. I, if it relates in, yeah, bring, bring I, it well, all the way I, Like, I feel like I should like fix this point in case you go back later. So Zabni was not acquired by Microsoft. It was a rumor and it was attempted. It, it didn't go well. Microsoft pulled out. Later on, Zabni was acquired by Yahoo. It was an acquire by Yahoo, okay. right? For less money that was invested. So if there was an if you'd say there was an acquisition, it was with Yahoo. Yeah. And it was years later, not while we were there. Yeah. So, okay. So how do we find our initial team? The two of us go out, we start working and we thought we were fine founder-wise and we went out to go raise money, right? And so in the meantime, we started working on basic proof of concept both with the online component, which was web-based at the time. It wasn't mobile. And also with the hardware. And so Greg had figured out a way to have a camera together and give the demo in investor offices, essentially. And then I was using that to you know, build out the front end that we could show on the web. And then also kind of showing it to people in like the Golden Gate Moms group <laughs> and the small businesses around us to see like, hey, if we let you borrow this for a day and you just try it, what do you do with it, right? So we were doing that sort of stuff at the beginning. We didn't really want to hire until we had money lined up because we knew that no one would really join us until that happened. We did end up looking like like we brought on another founder because that was like, you know, one way to do it without money, but that didn't work out. And so we actually parted ways after three months. So there's like some stories there around culture and like how that affected things, like why it didn't work out. Yeah, um, maybe touch on that briefly. You like somebody enough to bring them in as a founder. What was the surprise? For me, there's two big learnings. One is you should really, really align with the person who does the introduction because this is a big deal, right? It is essentially a marriage. And so the person who did the introduction, I don't think he had our interest at heart. I think he had the other person's interest at heart, right? Because the two of us were very aligned. We, Greg and I had, when we kind of committed to each other, we sat down at the bar underneath Greg's apartment and like wrote out on paper, here's your responsibility, here's my responsibility. Because we didn't want, again, we'd seen this anti-pattern at Zobni. We wanted to be clear about like, when it comes to these types of decisions, who's in charge, right? Greg was ultimately CEO, right? So you could always say, well, no, I'm CEO. I could, right. But we wanted to make sure that 
there were lines of responsibility that we were accounting for and understood like, oh, Amir's supposed to focus on this. Greg will focus on that. And there are some things that we just don't know, Mm -hmm. right? And so that things we just don't know led us to say, well, it would be interesting if we had a third person involved, like whether it was marketing side or if it was like really good with certain types of UI, like we thought maybe a third technical co-founder would be good. Mm -hmm. And so that led us to getting an introduction to another person and like he fit the boxes with the additional like plus when it came to raising funding of he was a, he had already founded a company before that had gotten acquired pretty early. So he had like a track record that was, that kind of led us down this path that we came together it, three months later, it was done because I think three things. One is there was no respect. We'd barely known this person as an introduction through someone else. Mm-hmm. We all said the right set of things, but I think when it came down to it, that person was like, well, you, y'all are newbie founders. If you don't know anything, I know everything. And that's probably partially true, sure, but there's a better way to approach it than to just yell at us, right? And then second, there was a cultural misalignment. I think the two best examples are, one, that person was very upset that we weren't, were not working from morning to evening, right? Wake up, work, go to bed, mm-hmm. right? And Greg and I had explicitly said we didn't want to go through that because we had seen that that did not work. Like we saw it not work at Zabni. And in fact, that people were burned out after six months. Yeah, it's uh, kind of common that. knowledge these days, but uh, yeah. definitely lore to uh, right. start up lore to work all hours. Right. And also like we had observed like at multiple companies, like that that's BS in the end. Like it's sure you're working together all the time, but you're not actually working. You're bantering and doing other things and whatever. So that was like one thing. The second thing was there was an, a desire to be like, when there was free time, to, that we were not friends. It was a dictation on what culture should be. Mm-hmm. Like, oh no, I want the company to be one that goes out to bars every night after we finish. And that we should be hanging out together all the time. And we should be going bowling. And there was disappointment in that. Like that, I'm not really going to criticize that. Right? Mm-hmm. It's just Greg and I knew we didn't want that because we were like trending in the opposite direction, right? Greg was married already. He knew he didn't want to neglect his, his wife. And I was in the boat where I was like, well, I, I like hanging out with you guys, but you're guys and I am very much in the dating market and I'm trying to find somebody right now. Yeah. So that was kind of the issue. And at the end of three months, we parted very amicably. Like the third founder has gone on, went on and did amazing things. He started another company, like did a really great job. And I definitely respect him. It's just that as a founder, it wasn't a good fit. Yeah, yeah. All right, cool. Well, we're going to continue with the drop camp story. I do want to move on from it because there's other stuff I want to get into. But tell me about the first institutional fundraise. What were the benchmarks that you all believe you had to hit? And what was it about that investor's conviction or belief in you that you think made it happen? So does the seed count or not? Because the seed round was 100,000 led by Mitch Kabor. I would say, let's talk about the A round. Okay, so the A round was led by Excel and uh, Samir Gandhi, right? And it was a $6 million round. And at that point, we'd been working for, I think it was pretty much 18 months, maybe even two years, right? And so what we had at that point was a camera made by someone else and software that we had put onto it. Like we'd hacked it on there and we were literally just going into doing stuff. And like the company, which is called Access Communications, they're still around today. They're like a super well-known camera manufacturer. They knew we were doing it. They were super happy we were doing it because we were selling their hardware. They didn't understand how we were able to hack into the software, but they didn't care because they were getting their margin, right? So we had taken that. And I think that Excel and Samir appreciated that spunk, right? That idea of like, oh, so you guys figured out how to, without going and spending 10 million, 15 million, 20 million on making a new piece of hardware and then trying to figure out whether it fit, right? They really appreciated that we said, look, we only have $700,000. We believe that this is a market that exists. Let's figure out some of the messaging, the use cases, and actually sell in that first couple of years to figure things out. So I think that was the number one thing. Because by the time we hit, 
the checkpoint and started doing the raise, we had metrics, right? We could tell you our customer acquisition cost seems to be X, right? Our average lifetime or our lifetime value we think is this because we are seeing retention rates of about this much. Mm -hmm. And so having all this stuff with about, I think it was on the order of a thousand customers, right? Of people who had actually paid was really helpful. Now, most people get to an A and at that time, at least, and we're like, well, we still haven't done anything. We're about to launch now, give us money, right? But we were able to say, no, 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 we've done this. We obviously have a hole in marketing because we haven't gone out to the whole world, right? But we're trying on that front. And we've got a lot of lessons that we can use to now like fuel the fire with $6 million. And along with that, the other component that was a big deal was what's the natural progression, right? We've done this, we've got this money, or we've done all this with 700K. If you give us money, we're going to make our own hardware, right? And that's really going to blow up the market, right? And so I think that was the thing. I was like, oh, you have good metrics that are showing a trend line and the bet, right, is going to be that you're going to super accelerate with this money because there's a very explicit ask here. It's not just now we're going to dump it into marketing and have it hopefully fuel the fire. It's no, no, no. There's a new hardware product and we think this will change the game. Fantastic. And then you enter the sort of the chicken and egg scenario where it's like hiring enough versus hiring too fast, satisfying demand versus like saving some dry powder. Tell me about that balancing act and building the early team. Yeah. So you'd asked earlier about like how we actually found people, right? And I told you about the founder scenario, but right away, you're right. We were trying to go out to our networks and get people to join us. We went back to the few people we thought were great at Zobni. A few of us of them joined us later on. I went back to the people at Power Reviews because that was, I thought this network there was super strong. And there are two of our early five folks came from there, but it was essentially a two year <laughs> dating cycle. Like I would always be asking them and like Greg would try to talk to them too. And when we wanted them to join us, we also went back to LinkedIn, talking to recruiters, all that sort of stuff. We would go to career fairs a lot. We would try to network by going to meetups and that sort of stuff. But it was a slog. At the Series A, right, which again was about two years in, we were only at four people. It was Greg, me, our first engineer, Lauren Kirkby, and then a support person. Right, That was it. <laughs> we had tried outsourcing some marketing stuff, outsourcing a little bit of project management. We were doing those things on the side, but it sounds like it was still just three of us. And some of that work did pay off when we brought people in like after two years, but I don't think that part went super well. Meanwhile, like when it came to building, yeah, we did go slowly, but I think Greg and I were really cognizant of, we don't want to just throw good money after no knowledge. We wanted some knowledge before we did it. Yeah. And so, yes, our investors always yelled at us for, for the whole lifetime of the company. You're not hiring fast enough. You're not hiring fast enough. And I think my perspective on that was, well, we know what we need to hire technically, but for everything else, I don't think we have a good enough description of the type of person we need to do the hiring. And so the way we did that was, you know, we learned it, right? Like Greg was doing some work and he's like, okay, now it's time to hire this type of person. I was doing a lot of marketing, sales, like Amazon stuff. And I think it helped us to spec out better what we needed. And then we did the hire. If we had listened to the investors and to the people around us back in 20, 2010, we would have been like, oh, we need to find someone who knows viral growth coefficients and go learn how to market on Facebook. That was totally not our market. That was not the approach we should have taken, right? But if we had followed the DeVerger advice, that's what we'd have done. And we would have just blown probably on the order of 500K just to bring in someone who was not a good fit. Yeah, yeah. Well, eventually though, you do go into uh, acquisition mode. And around the time when I come in, I remember you sharing a line, something along the order of, uh, it's sort of like Pokemon at growth phase. You got to catch them all. You know, Uh all the great engineers and designers and Tell me about when that light switch flipped when you knew that you were now heading into high velocity mode. For engineers, we were always trying to hire, right? Like software engineers, like Greg and I were both software software folks. And we thought, well, let's 
we want to bring in as many good ones as we can. Mm -hmm. I think the difficulty for us was a really hot market. The tide was turning, but I don't think it was acknowledged until maybe even just two years ago that it is the amount of money you make at a fang company is exorbitant, right? Mm -hmm. And so most people are risk averse and they don't want to join. I think even when you and Brian joined, we claimed we were paying at, let's say, 75%, right? The 75th percentile up to 90th percentile. We were trying to do that based on the numbers we saw. We would still lose because people were unwilling to leave. I think the difference that you brought in was changing our model for what a good hire looks like. I think there were some bad habits that we had picked up around pattern matching for school and for certain types of answers to the questions that we would ask that made us say like someone was good or bad, right? And if they gave the answer that I liked, it was good. Like I would hear that from a lot of, of the uh, interview team. My belief is, and I'd love to hear what you remember, right? Is that when you came in, you strongly but appropriately pushed back when someone said that. When someone said, oh, they were fine, but you would say, no, really, I want you to be specific. And I think that that led people to be like, okay, okay, I'm being a little hard on this person. And I think that changed because I think I remember like the first month of results and just like, where is this coming from? Like you're literally <laughs> tripling our pipeline in one month. How is this possible? And I talked to one of our like senior, senior engineers and they're like, well, I think it's that he's helping us to like talk through more of what we're seeing. And I thought that was really helpful. Yeah, yeah. What I remember is that the engineering team was probably the most disciplined about this stuff. It was some of the other areas where there was a lot of uh, shooting from the hip and, and sort of not putting themselves in the candidate's shoes. I saw some of that, but I didn't really take a whole lot. The, the team was pretty geared up to scale. Obviously, there was fantastic product market fit. Eventually, Nest acquires the company. Dropcam moves into Nest Google. Maybe just spend a quick minute talking about what that's like and specifically the responsibility of the founder to the team, the, the acquiring team, while balancing your own kind of career and your own life pathway in the new role. So yeah, I think you're saying the question is, how did we handle the acquisition? And like, both in terms of like how you deal with the team and how you deal with yourself. Yeah. So, let's see, yeah. so the acquisition happened and a lot of the work is done up front, right? And so behind closed doors, right? What we were, like what Greg and I were doing was trying to speak to the Nest team the executive team there about where does each person go? Where do they fit in? Where's the software UI team going to go? Where are the designers that we have going to go? Where's marketing going to go? So really by the time employees show up, some of the decisions are made for better or worse, right? And I think that that's where like, if I do it again, or if I, when I speak to teams that I advise, I say like, you need to have even clearer conversations on this front and be very explicit. Mm -hmm. And so, because once they arrive, I would say like my belief was I have an allegiance to these folks to make sure that they are comfortable and put in a place that allows them to succeed. So I felt like my first, you know, six months was debugging that yeah. and trying to figure out like, oh, is the issue that you like former employee, now general teammate, are you mentally like pushing back on things or is it that there's really a mismatch, something about the manager's not working out or the project you're working on? Right, or this is not challenging in the same way it used to be. I think that happened to us a lot. We were a scrappy team of 100 people, right? That had gotten a lot done. Like I remember when we showed up, like the exact team was like they were flabbergasted that we had launched the first version of a hardware product with 10 people at the company, right? Like Nest had you had a lot more, right? A lot more, and we had 10 to go live with not just a hardware device, but a cloud service that scaled while well within Google, <laughs> up to a thousand x of what it was before with like slight changes, but not a total restructuring, right? Yeah. How did your ambitions evolve? Like going in, doing the restructuring, you're through the six months, people are situated, some will stay and some will go. Like how does your own thinking then evolve? Yeah, so I would say like to reiterate, like I thought my number one goal was try to make sure that the folks that we're dealing with are 
ending up in a spot that's good for them. At times I was telling them like, look, this isn't working. If this is not working out, I'm not telling you to stay. Yeah. I tried to be very explicit about that. Right. And I would try to work with like the Google mothership to try to say like, okay, is there a way to get this person into like another position elsewhere? Right. Because in some places like Nest acted as if we were redundant, right. Which was not an expectation at all when we had, well, during the acquisition process. Mm. For me personally, then one reason I thought the acquisition would have been was going to be really great is yes, we thought that Google was going to accelerate Dropcam's growth and that we were going to take over the connected home together with Nest, right? And I was going to get to work with Tony Fidel, right? Tony Fidel is a luminary, someone who's amazing, and he's really great. Like, you know, he has, you know, bumps like every other human being, but I feel like I learned a lot from him and I learned a lot about product management and executive management. Mm-hmm from him as well, like both good and bad patterns to think about. And so that was my approach. Like I thought I'm here to spend the next few years absorbing this interaction as much as I can, as well as seeing like how did the executives around him respond, right? Sure. I think at Dropkin, we had a really great executive team too, but that was my one experience. I had dealt with only one VP marketing who I thought was great. Only one VP finance who I thought was great, right? Only one VP office I thought was great. And I was like, cool, now I get to see another set of execs because I'm at that level to like where I can at least access them and ask them questions. So I was just in full-on learning mode. I was not a VP at Nest or anything, right? Like I was a part of the product marketing team, right? So I got to learn how does this different exec team work? And because they all have Apple backgrounds, in theory, how does Apple work as well? And I had not had that observation. So that was my goal. Cool, cool. Eventually you leave, you try your hand at investing for a little while with Felicis and uh, maybe describe that a little bit. I recall when you were there, kind of what ended up pushing you away. And it was the sort of desire to be a builder, but maybe walk us through that. Let's see. So the question is, why join VC and then why leave? Is that fair? So I think, I'm not sure, but I think that most people who end up being a founder then say like, oh, well, I, you know, I'm, after I do this, I don't know if I want to operate all the time, but I want to still be involved in the community. So a good way to do it is by being a venture capitalist. Now it's like angel investing and you can do it at much smaller amounts too. So, but I thought, well, I would like to do it at scale with the team. Like I like working in really high functioning operating teams. And so luckily during that drop cam period, founders were coming to us all the time as we were scaling and asking for advice too. And if anyone was good, they were usually asking for some sort of investment. I didn't have any money, but I was like, well, let me introduce you to my, you know, to some of our investors that I think are good. And so I would, you know, introduce them to some of our seed investors and then to folks like Excel. And Menlo, like the folks who had gone on, gone on to help us raise our Series A and B, and that came back right over time. Those folks remembered some of this help, and they said, "Well, seems like you have a network now that you're not working at Dropcam anymore, Nest and Google. Why don't you come inside with us?" And so the opportunity to become an investor came up, and I said, "Well, this is accelerating my timeline. I thought I would maybe be doing this when I was 50 or 60. So sure, let's go ahead and try it now." And so that brought me in. Right, the departure I think is more about. There's nothing wrong with being a VC. I think they play a very important role in the overall economy. All the people I know were really great. For me personally, I think there were three things. One is I'm not extroverted in that way. Like I don't think I really... I didn't want to go to every event. I also didn't want to just blog about everything and hope that someone would find it you know, helpful and like respond to me. The second thing is you have to be long-term in a different way. Right. Like there's the timeline for a return on investment is like seven, eight years and it's out of your control. Right. And it's getting longer. Right. And like, because all you're really doing as an investor is hoping that the founders or the exec team will give you a call and ask for your help and give you updates. But you're not in the day to day trying to make things happen. And I think that leads to the third thing is like, I like being in the weeds and helping on that front. Right. Like, whether it's interim helping like some of the companies I work with now just to do projects to help out or working on my own stuff. Right. I like to get involved and 
code myself, like help set strategy myself, right? And I don't think that's supposed to be the role of an investor as much as it is listening to what the exec team comes up with. Yeah. And so those are the main things. The, the turning point for me really was six months in, I meet with a founder of a company that we had invested in. I was at Felicis Ventures and he had a very similar path to me. He had done a company, it had, had a successful exit. He was in VC for a while. And then he went and started this company that had gotten funded and we were helping. And uh, I told him, oh, that's cool. Like, What made you decide to go back into industry? And he said, because basically he said, every time I talked to a founder and I thought the idea was good, I got mad at myself that I had not thought of it first. <laughs> And I was having that feeling. I was like, oh man, I should be doing this idea, <laughs> right? That's a really good one, right? I was just saying, that's a really good one. And then the investing would come up after that. And so that feeling didn't go away after a year. And so that's when I decided that I should just go back and build. Yeah, be true to yourself. Well, eventually your building takes you into a role of service. And that's what I was uh, really excited to touch on. You spent over a year with the US Digital Service and... From what I recall, it was a sort of teaching the product management to the government. Maybe you can walk us through your decision to do that and sort of what you took away from that experience. Sure. So for those listening, if you're interested in some sort of government, there are lots of ways to do it, right? That you can do it at the county level, at the city level, that California even has a California digital service. So at the federal level, there's a few options. There's what you described, the U.S. digital service, right? Which is a job, right? Like you can go join, you apply and you work there and then you can leave. There's a few different things like that. What I ended up doing is called the Presidential Innovation Fellowship. So it's a one year or two year or longer position where you essentially come in as a fellow into the General Services Administration, and then they assign you to an agency in the government. And so I applied mainly because I knew that I wanted to do service of some type since I'd been in college and had never found a way to do it. And Todd Park, who's a well-known person here in Silicon Valley, had become the first head of this back in, I think, around 2014 or so. And I heard about it back then. And so the time was right for me family-wise to think about this type of service and like living in Washington, D.C. So I signed up and I applied and really just wanted to spend a year. I thought a year of service to do something like this would be great. And I just said, here's my background. Whatever I can do to help would be awesome. So GSA assigned me to NGA, which is the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. And they have been around for decades. They're a core part of our government. I like to say they're kind of Google Maps for government, right? Imagine anything you need to know, where it is on the planet, what's going on there, NGA knows about it. And so they do a lot of software because of that, because there's a lot of data and they don't have any product managers. <laughs> it's all under the auspices of program management, which is not the same thing. And so I joined and after learning about how things were fitting together over three months, the CTO at the time had said, we need to make product management a big part of this company, like modern software product management. And so with my arrival, we decided to push forward on that and develop a system to train folks internally under like a unified system. So people at least understood what the expectations were for the role. And then after that, how you can do it well. Yeah, very cool. We're almost out of time here. And so I wanted to touch on a couple of uh, recurring questions that we like to ask. And so I guess the, the first one that I'll, I'll pose to you is, what advice would you share with the younger Amir? Don't be in as much of a hurry. I think that's one of my like big flaws. I think for most founders out there, you feel like you're always behind. You feel like you're not doing as well as the folks around you. You feel like, oh, this startup should have been acquired in year one for a billion dollars, right? Things take time. Good things take longer time. And I think it's okay to just pause and reflect and say, well, I've done well so far. Like we're doing, we're making good progress. And to use that as a marker more than it is to just say like, I haven't hit the goal yet. Awesome. Awesome. And then we like to get shout outs. So anyone that's out there doing something that is occupying your thought lately that you just want to shout out as being great. 
Okay, well, I would definitely give you and Brian a shout out. I think what you're doing with Build Talent is really awesome. I think we did work with a lot of recruiters, both contingency style as well as executives. And I think what you're describing is like really special. And I think you're bringing in the secret sauce you had while we were at Dropcam. The second person I would say is a friend of mine named Raheem Fazel. He's working on a startup. He's CEO of a company called SV Academy, which is centered around education and like new models for how to get people into the workforce and into tech. That's a very mission-oriented company. And I don't think I personally encountered one that was like mission-oriented in that way until his company came along. And I really appreciate it. I think that's... I want to give a shout out because I feel like he's exposed me to a different type of Silicon Valley startup building that has affected me pretty deeply. Yeah, very cool. Amir, thank you so much for coming on here, sharing your story, running through my questions and for sharing your wisdom with us. Really outstanding episode here and like just really appreciate everything that you've done for us and support. So thank you and hope to have you on again. You're welcome. Yeah. Send hugs to the family and to Brian. The Gradients is brought to you by Build Talent. To find out more about us, head to buildtalent.io and make sure to search for The Gradients in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Click follow so you don't miss out on any future episodes. And on behalf of everyone here at Build, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.